Hello and welcome to another episode of My Life on the Line, a podcast by Ref Coach. I'm Jack and I'm joined by Benji and Ale. Our aim is to show the humans behind the whistle through the eyes of referees past and present, as well as the broader footballing world. We've got a great guest coming up on the show today, Daniel Diamond, who is a sports and performance psychologist. Daniel has worked with athletes and organisations such as the Adelaide Australian Rules Football Club, Golf Australia, and he's the lead psychologist for the Athlete Mental Health app, Arete. We have some great conversations with Daniel. We talk about the psychology of performance, moving on when making mistakes, being more compassionate to ourselves, and really interestingly, how refereeing sometimes is a game of incomplete information, very much like poker. Really looking forward to this one. Let's get on with the show. I recommend a on-field review. Daniel, good evening. Buonasera. Buonasera, come va? Bene, good, good. Yourself, mate? Yeah, good, mate. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, here are my uh, my couple of uh, partners in crime, mate, Benji and Jack. Hey, Daniel. Hey, which was which? Uh, the guest, Jack. Okay, that one's Benji. All right, very good. How are you guys? Good, thank you. We, you've just jumped into a very in the middle of a very heated debate about Ooh. Google about the Google <laughs> Suite versus the Microsoft Office Suite, and Benji and I are <laughs> saying that Office is miles better for work stuff. And Ale's saying, no, Google Google Suite is miles better for work stuff. Ale, sorry, man. I, I don't use Google Suite, so I'm all about the Microsoft. Oh, dear. He thinks he's an innovator and blah, blah. Bullshit. Oh, no, I, well, so I don't use it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, have been using, I have been using the the G Suite for about five years now, considering that I always work with companies overseas, basically, or at least people overseas. And I will never, ever go back. No, it's very good, but it has its place as Benji. Anyway, that's an incredibly boring topic. (laughs) (laughs) And here is this podcast with Daniel's special guest. It's great to see what what you guys uh, do in your spare time. (laughs) Fucking hell, what a boring bunch of blokes. It's been a while since we've had some football. (laughs) So the only way I can get my ego trip. Thanks, Benji. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's Benji's bit. There you go. He's done for the podcast for tonight. <laughs> Have you been doing with the uh, with the lockdown, mate? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, it's probably it's probably last couple of weeks where I've just last two three weeks I've sort of noticed just things like my my, my from my focus just drifting off a lot. My productivity levels have dropped. But in terms of the whole lockdown from the start of March from end of March, I've been going okay. Um, yeah. It's just starting to. Just starting to get to me yeah. a little bit now. I reckon yeah. it's because there's light at the end of the tunnel now for the first time in how long? And you just like, I'm getting excited about what's coming, but I know that, you know, it's still what, October 26, so it's still over a month away. But in my Man, mind, so I'm going, oh, it's so soon, it's around the corner, but it's not. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's, uh, for me, for me, I just, I think I'm, um, I live on my own, so... I think uh, it's just started to, I'm just getting distracted by probably more social media and just looking for yeah. other sort of interactions now. I'm desperate for clients, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, so um, I think that's probably a large part of it. Daniel, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here tonight. You obviously are a sports psychologist, a performance psychologist. What's, what's the correct definition? I don't want to get this wrong because obviously I don't know. Oh, look, I mean, I... Look, technic- technically, I'm a sports psychologist or a psychologist who happens to, to specialize or is endorsed by the clinic of sports psychology, right? Uh, that's, so the technical term is 
is sports psychologist. I'm trained as a psychologist. I call myself a performance psychologist because I don't just work in sport. I work in performance as well. So I see doctors. I see quite a few of those doctors actually from emergency physicians to uh, those working in intensive care, surgery, and anesthesia, and also CEOs and business as well, where performance matters, and also performing arts. Right. So I tend to I tend to use the term performance psychology, and that that tends to be used more even in sport now. It, it, the 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 colloquial terms now are, you, are more are you a performance psych rather than a sports psych, but the college is is the sports psychology college. Benji, if your brother ever needs uh, some help with his performing live Facebook concerts, which uh, happen on Wednesday nights, there you go. You got to contact. I mean, I've got to hijack <laughs> in already and think that it's very relevant to refereeing because we often talk about ourselves as perform performance our game that's not a oh did you have a good game or did you referee well it's all about did you have a good performance did the team have a good performance um and so yeah definitely slots in very well there i can definitely appreciate from the sporting point of view particularly in the case it feels more so as referees that we are uh in many ways on show uh for the crowd and it is effectively a performance correct performance is Ultimately, uh, well, what is it? What is it? It's essentially uh, a set of behaviors you're aspiring to execute, right? That is, and when you nail performance, that's what it is. You're executing particular behaviors and actions uh, that you're, you're planning and intending to do. And so I assume, well, not assume, but for a referee, it's executing the right decisions, communicating well with players, uh, staying composed, controlling the match, from an emotional perspective, if you, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, so that's the performance of a, of a referee, I believe, unless there's something I, I missed out there. <laughs> I've, I've simplified it, but it's not simple. <laughs> uh, if it that simple, then you'll be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you, you touched on, you've worked with loads of different people uh, from doctors and CEOs to athletes, but how did you get to where you are, Daniel? What, what's your story that, that led you to be a performance psychologist? Do you, do you want the, the long version that I like to tell? <laughs> if it's a good story, we love a good yarn. It's, it's not bad because it's, it's football, I think you can relate. Yeah, okay, so let's go. The, sort of the, the surface level story was I'm always passionate about sport, right? I was, I was an average uh, student at school, but when I found out there was something called psychology and when I left and went to uni and did sports science, that's where, that's where my passion sort of for it grew. But I think it started earlier. And I think you guys might appreciate this, and the Galle will definitely. So, so I, like I'm, I'm half Italian. I'm obviously born in England. I used to spend a lot of my, uh, my time in Italy because half my, well, pretty much all my family is Italian. And so I used to go there in the summer and spend it with uh, my, my granddad and, and my folks were obviously there as well, and cousins and all that. One day I played tennis with my dad. I was playing tennis with him. And I was about 12 years old and I was beating him, smashing him. It's coming to the end of the, of the hour, right? Uh, I was serving, hit this serve, absolutely nailed it, ace, right? Bang, I was like on the line, walking away. And I heard someone from the outside of the court call it out. It was in this like gruff Eastern European accent, out. I looked over, double took, and it was Boban, right? The captain oh. of Croatia, right? <laughs> but not just him though, it was also Oliver Bierhoff, and Albertini. Oh, no way. Right? So, yeah. So, uh, for the younger listeners, uh, Oliver Bierhoff was an uh, yeah. amazing German goal scorer and Albertini had 100 caps for Italy. And so, these guys are waiting for the court to play. 
And I look over and I was a football nut and I just crumbled. Like I didn't win another point. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking about being human. I, I was distraught. I sat down on the, on the bench after the game, after, after the match. I lost, lost, the, lost the set in my game. It, just, it was just a silly set. Right? Okay, but I was distraught because of the way it looked to these footballers. I was like, obviously, in awe of. Uh, my dad sat me down. He goes, Dan, you know, I was, I was obviously nervous, anxious, and, and, I, and I choked. And he said, you know what? They're, they're only human. They're just human beings. No, you don't need to put them on that pedestal or like, you can't understand that they are just human beings and you're just playing tennis with humans watching. And so I think that's probably when I started to notice there was some sort of relationship between emotions and thoughts and, and, and performance. I sort of resonated with my brain, things sort of lit up in my head, made sense. And I then went to University of Queensland. That's why I moved over to Australia uh, to study, to become a psych and then to become a sports psych. That's a great story. I could see, especially Benji, when you started mentioning Bob and Albertini and Birov kind of going, who are these people? I, I, watched, I saw them play, <laughs> Oliver Birov, Zvonimir Boban, and Dimitri Albertini. They were the, part of the heart and soul of AC in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm pretty sure they were three outstanding players. Boban, it's still in the AC management, as, or maybe was and got sacked. You can take that as a revenge uh, against him for putting pressure onto you <laughs> on that. He called it out. It was never out. Yeah. Can I ever meet him? I'm going to have words. <laughs> what did your dad say? Did your dad go with your cool or oh, my, No, no. My, my dad said it was out, but he definitely cheated. It was funny because I was <laughs> <laughs> literally, randomly, it came up yesterday. I was having a chat with my dad on WhatsApp and <laughs> we actually randomly were joking about it because we still joke about it to, like, to, to this day. Yeah. Um, no, these guys were, you know, these were big players back then. In oh, yeah. Of, I think it was the mid-90s then, actually. But, uh, yeah, it would have been, because Birov came out um, to AC from the Yeah. Yeah, he was top goal scorer in 96, wasn't he, in Euros? Yeah, it was beast. I remember he was outstanding. Um, that's a great story. That's fantastic. <laughs> have you been able to harness that story when, you know, in your, um, in your work, obviously there's a lot of relatables there between high performers. Can you genuinely have you harnessed that story and do you use it in, in your workplace? Do I tell that story at the workplace? Yeah, because obviously it's so relatable to do with joking. I've started to use it more and more because the, the story about being passionate at uni is a bit boring, right? So, <laughs> the, yeah, I use it more and more. Yeah, no, I do. I tell it and it, and it humanizes me. So, <laughs> oh, absolutely. obviously, psychology can be a bit of a, oh, what's the site doing here? So, I just, yeah. yeah how do you find that? Because I can totally see someone that's talking to a psychologist may feel a bit, you know, I'm getting analyzed. I have to be vulnerable. I need to open up. I'm going to struggle to do that. I can see people maybe. If it's not a conscious, but even if it's someone saying, I need help, I need to talk to someone about this. I need to talk to someone that is a professional. I need help to improve, to get better, blah, blah, blah. How do you find dealing with that sort of situation? So it's, it's very interesting. I, there, are two, there are two separate things going on here. Athletes who come to see me, so athletes in my private practice, are more, tend to be more open. There's a tendency that, they've made the decision to come. So there's like a, it's, 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 it's always voluntary. So say that, but it's, it's, they're more motivated to come. When I go and consult at or work at other places, so I'm leaving, entering other people's quote unquote territory, if you like, go to a club or to, right? Then it becomes a little bit different. 
then I have to build relationships. It's really important. I have to absolutely human, become more human and, and just show personality right, to, to build trust uh, and obviously a lot of empathy that, 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 that goes in there. But they're, they're two quite different, different ways of sort of, of working, if you like. You know, with adolescents, with younger, younger kids coming into my, coming to my office and in private practice who like, have been said or who recommended by their parents or something like that or a coach, then yeah, I have to do a bit of a bit of that work, just showing empathy and, and listening. We have to always do that anyway. But I, th- I think the general the, the general underlying point here is if I have to find a balance of normalizing psychology in the way I talk about it. So if if I I think if I come across as a person who is deeply clinical, um, I remember being at uni watching videos of of clinical psychs having this real detached uh, way and this dual detached mannerisms that can be seen as quite cold. Guide their videos and examples. But you can't really do that as a sports psych. I don't think you've got to. It's really important you show more relatability, more human side to yourself. And so that's, that's how I, I, I tend to go about that's That's such a theme. Daniel, that we've heard from lots of different people, obviously, throughout this season of My Life on the Line, we've spoken to people like yourself who not psychologists, but are involved with athletes or referees in some way or another. And, and you're the third or fourth person who has really talked about how important it is to build trust, to build genuine relationships. And then once you get to that point, well, then you can really start to get stuff done. That's when the magic happens. But until you reach that point, you know, there's that friction, there's defensiveness. So really fascinating that, that again, that theme of, I guess, human connection before the magic can happen has come back up. Yeah, 100%. What, what I will say is, and I'm sure the other guys have said this too, guys and girls have said this too, is that you can build a relationship still by still being professional and displaying, and I'll say this term, again, I'm going to use a quotation mark, expertise. So you, me talking about psychoeducation and why we might feel anxiety or pressure, things like that, that's building relationship. It's not me telling the person how to think, although I never do that, but it's, I'm not telling, I'm not going into a place of telling. I might be doing educating and that builds relationships in itself. It's not just about asking someone where they're from and knowing a bit about their family. It, it, it's partly that, but it's also showing credibility in, in your work. That's a really important part of trust building and relationship building. And then it moves away from that surface level because I think, you know, you're always going to have that, oh, hey, hey, girl, what do you do? Bro? And, and that surface level. But yeah, trust comes from someone a lot deeper. And that is, you know, you touched on respect for what they do. Is it respect because of what you've done before or maybe you make an immediate impact and that's where the respect comes from. But I find that fascinating and whether it's through a, from a psych or from a coach or an assessor, that's when you have respect and trust, that's when you can really get in the zone and you can, or you can, with the help of the coach or the psychologist, that's when you can get out of your comfort zone. And that's when, you know, you can go mm-hmm. from five out of 10 to your 10 out of 10. You can really make those big improvements. Right. There's, there's a great model for, for, for trust and it, it speaks exactly what you've just said. It's, it's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, which is more of your empathy side of things. So those all build trust. What erodes trust in the equation or the model is self-orientation, which is basically your ego when you make things about yourself. Right? So you've got trust, reliability, intimacy, builds it, 
and self-orientation reduces it. And that's really what you've got to think about or have in the back of your mind, if you like, building those three and making sure you're never making it about yourself too much. I love that. There's, as you were saying, that one of my questions was, well, as referees, you know, we always talk about how on the field of play you need to build relationships in order to be able to manage better a game and referee better. So you have to be human and all that sort of stuff. And then you said one thing that literally made me go, ah, not making things all about yourself. And that's something that it's very important in refereeing. We, we always say, supporters say, team, men, you know, team managers, players say, referees should not make everything about themselves. The game is people don't pay tickets to go and watch a referee, but they pay tickets, they pay money to go and watch teams play. So I was going to ask you, well, what do you think is the best way to build that trust as a referee, as a person, not, not really just as a match official, but as a person when you're meeting someone? And I think you answered that by, with that matrix you just mentioned, the credibility, reliability, em- empathy, and not making things about yourself. It resonated so much with me because we, we see that maybe sometimes too often with match officials. Well, yeah, a couple, a couple of things there. There's a few things. Um, it's interesting to get your thoughts as well on it. One, that only one person really knows if they're making things about themselves. So there's a lot of times you'll obviously hear crowd, you know, players, um, and you know what? I'm a, I'm a state league soccer player, not I'm in the lower leagues, but, um, but you know, I, I, I still play. And you know, I often hear my, my teammates saying things like that, that the referee is making it about himself. And only one person knows that, right? And that's the, the person who is making it about himself. The other thing is, when we're, when we're looking at credibility, reliability, intimacy as things you've got to build, that, none of that says perfection. In none of those three equals being perfect. So that's such an important thing to consider because when we're unwilling to make any mistakes or unwilling to even admit mistakes, then, you cr- then it creates a real problem because actually unwilling to admit mistakes makes it about you're making it about yourself. Uh, that, that, that's music to all of our ears, Daniel. We, you know, you, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. We spoke to Ben Crow a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but it's very much along the exact same lines of, mm-hmm. as what you said. And it just, it just resonated so much with all of us, you know, that, that not having to be perfect, that not having expectations on yourself. Okay, sure, being successful and being successful in what you want, but also without getting too deep, it, it's so key to happiness. You know, how can you be true, truly happy with yourself if you're always trying to be perfect? Because perfect perfection is you know, really, unless you're diving in the Olympics and get four tens and win gold medal, well, perfection for 99% of us is just impossible to reach. So I love that you've touched on that. that that's, I'm, I'm sure you could see us smiling as you were saying it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's we, I don't think we spend enough time realizing that we can get caught in that idea. Like, I think it's very easy for our brains to want to do that. I guess it's part of being human, right? It's all, we also then have to consider whether it's really helpful. Does it actually help performance? Mm. Well, when you try and be perfect and you have the expectation that you're going to be and that fails, that creates in the brain something called a violation of expectations. So actually, let's do a little experiment on, 
on that, shall we? Uh, here we go. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, this is good. The a first on My Life on the Line, live experiment. Yeah, usually we are the ones making this stuff, but yeah. Let's let's do a little <laughs> let's do a little experiment on, on violation of expectation. So I'm gonna tell you a, a story. Right? Three weeks ago, I uh, I woke up and I got out of bed. I got out of bed and the first thing I did was put the, the kettle on to uh, to make some coffee. So I put the coffee in the my, my, my little filter. I then uh, started making myself some cereal, some wheat bix um, got the milk out the fridge, and then the, the kettle was done. So I poured the, the, the water, water onto, onto the coffee to, to drip down and started eating my Weetabix. And then from there, I checked my phone, right? And on my phone, there was a message from my dad. That's it. That's my story. Now, that's a really boring story. Who was expecting me <laughs> to tell something interesting there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah, you were what? But now, right. what happened in your brain when I stopped? What was this? What was your thought? What's next? What's next? What's next? What, what did your dad say? Is that it? That, is that it? Right. Exactly. That's the story, right? Well, I created that little expectation that it was going to be interesting because I told you a story, but it's really boring. And... That's just a really, really bland example of violation of expectation. In fact, the blandest example you can have. But just imagine that under pressure when things are really important to you. You can imagine what happens when we have an expectation and of not making a mistake or trying to be perfect and that gets violated. Our brain goes off, right? And it, it's a pretty difficult place to navigate when, when that's happening. We are very excited to be launching a series of refereeing workshops for the members of our community. To find out more about dates, topics, and how to register, head to our RefCoach Facebook group. You touched on making mistakes there, and unfortunately, as you know, as a referee, well, as anybody, but as, as, especially as referees, every game we're going to make mistakes, right? Hopefully, there'll be really small ones that people don't really notice. You know, maybe we run in the wrong place or we get a throw in on the halfway line wrong. Is it important? No. But sometimes we will make mistakes that do have a big impact you know we give a penalty that's incorrect or we send off a player wrongly or we don't send off a player when we should I'd love to get your thoughts on how athletes and in particular referees how can we bounce back from that you know do you have strategies and thought processes that you can share with us in that space okay it does depend on what you as a referee as the individual uh, is going through in that moment Huh? Is it rage? Is it, are you pissed off at yourself? Right? Are you really down on yourself? Are you nervous now and anxious about the, the mistake that you've made? Right? So you've got, to, you've got to think about those different emotional responses that we all can have. There's, there's more than those three, but those are the you know, angry, uh, nervous, and sad, down, right, would be the three classic ones. And obviously, the, what, what are the onsets of that? Doubt. We might even get overly defensive, there are all different types of, of reactions. So the first strategy is to understand what's more likely to happen for you, right? So that's the first one. How do I typically, uh, you might feel all three, right? But once, we, once you understand each of those, then you can look at, okay, what am I going to do about that? But let's track back a little bit more. What's even more important than, than how you're going to respond, you have to land, lay down the foundations of understanding that you're going to be making these mistakes. So you actually have to pre-plan it, right? You're obviously going to plan to make every decision. No, no referee goes out there and no player goes out there to make mistakes. No referee goes out there with any intentions of. You thinking about the fact that you, you may well make them, 
doesn't increase the likelihood of you doing that. In fact, it will actually reduce because you'll respond better if you do, right? So to actually have a mindset of flexibility is a really important thing to start to lay down. So as much as you mean you might create visualizations in your head over how you're going to make decisions and knowing certain players and what they're like and understanding all of that, you also have to, as part of your pre-prep, you're going to have to have the commitment that when you do make a mistake, you're able to let it go, right? Now, I'll throw it back to you. What's, what's the best high-level concept here, do you think? If you're going to make a mistake, what's, what's the best thing to do? Well, for me, it's always letting go of it as soon as possible. If I know I've made a mistake, it's let go of it as soon as possible. And, and I find that hard, but try and let go of it as soon as possible and just focus on the next one. Because, you know, if it's early in the game, well, you've got a hell of a lot more that you need to referee. So Correct. for me, it's moving on quickly. Correct. Yeah, it has to be. But let's step about the actual mechanism to that, right? How do we get from making a mistake to unhooking? Now, let's use the analogy of what, what is a hook? So imagine we're all on a hook. We're actually attached like a fish on a hook. If you let yourself off the hook, and I don't mean just that from an analogy point of view, I actually mean that literally let yourself off the hook or actually figuratively let yourself off the hook. That actually means forgiving. So you have to be kind to yourself. If you don't have a mentality of kindness and compassion to yourself, like you would do to a mate who made the same mistake, it's going to be really hard. Now, footballers are lucky because they've got teammates to help them be kind. <laughs> referees, okay, they might have their assistant referees or assistant referees may have the others, but it's a lonely place. You know, it's probably sometimes got 45 minutes before you're able to communicate with them you know, more, more, in a more intimate ma- manner. So you've got to learn the skills of being actually self-compassionate. There's actually really good evidence now that I call it high-performance compassion because compassion historically is a bit of a dirty word in sport because you've got to be tough, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's nonsense that there's acting tough and there's being tough and acting tough is very different. The idea with actually learning the skills to be kind to yourself, talk to yourself kindly is the only way you're going to be able to refocus really back onto what's important next. That makes me think about, first of all, I just want to cut most of that, what you just said and send it to all the teams and all the players all over the world and be like, oh, no referee stop, steps on a field of play willing to be making mistakes. So, because that's, you, we hear it all the time. People think that we want to do that. Obviously not true. Um, but that makes me think there's a really good story about, I think it was Ian, uh, no, Michael Phelps. He created a habit of doing kind self-talk and what he used to do in order to fight feeling like he wasn't enough. What he would do is every time we would walk through a door, he would say something good about himself. So every time he would walk through a do- door, he would say, you're a good human. You're a good swimmer. You are a good at this. You're enough of this. You're enough of that. So then he would put himself in a mentality where he's used to, so built a habit by talking to himself every time he would walk through a door. So then when he would go and perform and had to perform, he was used to that positive self-talk. That made me think about that story because to me, really when I used to ref, when I used to make a mistake, the best way to get over it was just saying, look, it happens. I've done it. I just have to accept it and get on with it. Makes me think about the times that I could just say, look, that can happen to anyone and move on and not be as stuck onto that single mistake for the whole game. Well, I would imagine one of the hardest things for refs is when you make a decision and then you realize that you made it. 
because making a mistake is one thing, but refs obviously don't, don't always know that they made a mistake, right? It's maybe a bit obvious if it's a footballer, you pass the ball to an opponent, it's a bit more obvious. Usually you get pretty instant feedback, but, but only there are some occasions where you, you'll make a decision, then you'll realise retrospectively that oh, that wasn't the right one. You can't go back, right? Usually it's as soon as you blow the whistle and point to a decision and you think in your head, okay, that is wrong. Yeah. And that's the, that must be the, that must be a really hard place to be in. Right. Because yeah, I'm just trying to get my head around actually the, the, the experience of that, knowing that that's actually happened. Yeah. It's a tough place to be. Maybe I'll add another string to that, Daniel, and it was something when I was making my notes before this, I wanted to talk to you about, because obviously, you know, you're a football fan yourself, so you're aware of VAR, so video assistant referee, and how that's changed the game. And for the first time ever in football now, we have this referees at the top level were able to go over and have a look and potentially fix their mistake. Do you think... And I know you're not an expert in the specific field of VAR, but do you think, or how do you think that would impact the psych of the ref for the rest of the game? Do you think it'd be a good thing in going, oh, it's okay, you know, rub my hands, I fixed the mistake, or do you think it's a, shit, I still made the mistake, the players know I made the mistake, and did I get embarrassed by VAR fixing it? Okay, so, so VAR creates an amazing opportunity for, for refs in that sense. Because I often describe to people the difference between, so when I talk about performance psychology in business and sport and things like that, and, and refereeing more obviously sports side of things, the difference between the pressure and the consequences of failure in sport is you cannot rewind. There is no delete button on your, there is no email to delete in sport. You can't make a typo and then go, hang on a second. I'll have, that, I'll have that pass again, please. I'll just delete that and, and go, go again. There is no second chance. And that's what increases pressure because all the, all the incre- only thing that really incre- increases pressure is the consequences of failure. That's all the pressure is, consequences of failure. And the use of it, and personally, I think the use of it on the side is, the, is a great use, but that's just me. It's not used in the Premier League or it's used more in the A-League, or at least it was, but that presents an amazing opportunity for, for refs because it, that should t- alleviate some of the pressure because all people want is the right decision. That's all people want. And it increases the chances of that happening. And you don't, you're, you don't need to use it for every single decision because actually, even though fans don't think so and players often don't think so, refs are usually right. <laughs> they usually make the right decision. <laughs> right? So it just increases it a little bit more. You know, the, was it? I don't know if you have the stats on it, but realistically, it's well over ninety percent. Was it ninety-eight percent? I'd imagine of decisions. Close, are right. close to that, ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent. Yeah. 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 So you know, people forget that. So this, this, you know, the use of VAR is potentially an amazing opportunity. I'm not sure we've got it right yet. As you know, we FIFA, whatever, have got it right yet, but we will, and it's going to make things a lot, a lot better for. For refs and for, for the players as well. Yeah, I, lo- yeah. I love your thoughts. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that. It was like, I fucking love what you just said. It's, you know, I never thought about VR from that point of view. I mean, obviously having the, the possibility of going back, taking a step back and saying, oh, okay, hang on, I got that wrong. I'll fix it. 
obviously always seemed amazing to me because you can do better for the game, but I never thought about taking away the pressure of their mistakes. Yeah, this is that was my exact takeaway. Exact takeaway from what you just said. I've never thought of it about as refs, we can go into games with VAR and say, hey, we know that if something wrong, really wrong does happen, we're going to have the opportunity to fix it. And it's almost like you're letting your balloon of pressure go straight away because you know you're going to be able to come back and have a chance to fix a major error. If you get caught, in your head going, oh no, I made a mistake and it's now to see, then you are a perfectionist and, you need, and, and that's something you need to be really mindful of, right? Because that's not going to help you become a better referee. That what's going to help you become a better referee is increasing your chances of making better decisions and that's what VAR is there to do. And also being on the ref coach group and uh, getting coached by us, but well, this is number shameless. one. But we do we do talk about that. What you just said, Daniel, it's we talk about it a lot on, on, on Ref Coach. It's by participating in and watching the videos and commenting on the videos and getting the coaching on the videos, you're you're training your gut. We kind of coined this phrase of it's training your gut. So sure, it's easy, you know, you can do it and have the replays when you're watching a video, great. But if you do that enough and practice that enough then when it comes onto the field and you see a situation which you've basically seen before or very, very similar, you can identify the similarities, then your gut is just going to tell you what the answer is because you've learned over the years and time and with experience, you've learned that. And those 1% is just build and build and build and build to do exactly what he said. And that's to put yourself in the best position to be successful when you go on the pitch and you know control those things before and it's going to maximise your performance. So I, I really like what you're talking about, the gut. I, I, I sort of talk about it slightly differently. I think when you, the, the players through on goal and goes around the keeper, keeper takes him, takes him or her out and that's trained automatically. You see things with automaticity there, right? That's what I call it, performance with automaticity. You know it, okay, bang, yeah, I, I know what happened. Your gut is for the one or two percent of the time where it's actually not a pen, right? And everyone else thinks it is, but there's something in your gut going, mm, something off about that. Why is the why does that why does that guy's girl's leg just move to the left there and just hang, hang around for a little bit longer? And that's the gut is it's for the expert the expert decision the the bit that's the anomaly. That's when your gut goes and makes a great decision. Everyone's like that's definitely a pen, but then on the replays goes, oh wow, great what a great decision for the ref. But the automaticity is for the 99%. But the gut is for that, for that little tiny bit. That one so you train, you're almost tra- you're training two parts of yourself. Correct, yeah. You know, that, that automaticity, yeah. which is and, – and do you think – is it the same thing? So when you're going through and watching clips and teaching yourself, you're, you're doing both at the same time? Or is there certain things that you think will help you with, with one or the other? I would say the training – and this is, this is sort of me thinking out loud here, training builds up the 99, experience builds a one, right? And you can't actually do what, one, have one without the other. You need both, as in you need, you need to train yourself to be able to get out there and, and then have the experience which then builds the gut. That's what, that's what it is because you're not going to be an expert just by watching. So you have to have the experience as well. But I love that. And it's so true. You know, you could have never refereed a game of football, but that all this training, all this training, and are you going to go out there and get the decision right? No, of course. Or most of the decisions right? Probably not because you've never refereed. You need that experience, which is just game upon game upon game upon layer upon, you know, it's that doing 30, 40 games a season for 10 years. And those, it can, well, 
makes me think of, correct me if I'm wrong, is it the, the 10,000 10, hours to be an expert? Yeah, so it's, it's a really, that's, um, oh, it's a really interesting one, the 10,000 hour rule. It's, and you're probably aware, it, it came from one study on, I think, chess players, right? Uh, maybe ballet as well. I can't, I might be confusing myself. I think it's chess. Chess is the, like, it's not a sport, but it's a game where it's the most, it's essentially all rote learning. Repetition, repetition, repetition. There's amazing studies out there that show that if you get expert chess players against mediocre chess players, developing decent sort of chess players, and you create a chessboard, you place a chessboard of pieces that wouldn't normally be, you wouldn't typically see on the chessboard. So you wouldn't typically see a, a king of one of the pieces over the, the top other side of the corner, right? So you just put random pieces everywhere. They're actually, the, the, the chess players with less experience tend to do better than the ones who, are, who have wrote learned. So chess is all about just understanding moves and probabilities and rote learning, right? Um, because they've seen the patterns on the board before. But when you mix it up, it's amazing. Um, so yes, there's an element of the thousand hour, the 10,000 hour rule, but actually when you get into what's called a wicked learning environment, a wicked environment, which is more chaos, football, AFL, rugby, but even those two probably less, but football and AFL are more wicked environments. You, you need to have a diff, not just the 10,000 hours, but you actually need to look to understand more strategy and, and uh, the movement body positions of players and things like that. And those little nuances that, that come about that created by chaos of, of, of the sport. So that's slightly different training uh, that I think uh, is needed rather than just, just that. But I think for obviously for decision, make, decision making, you, you need a lot of that, the hours. Don't just, don't just get caught in the idea. It's just 10,000 hours because it's, it's, it's more than that, I think. Yeah. Definitely you talk about that chaos and those environments. And I was thinking as you were talking about how, you know, chess is that rote learning. Well, well, football as a player and as a referee, it's the complete opposite. It is that chaos and it, it requires the biggest thing I thought, as you were saying, adaptability because you never know what's going to come up. And Ale's bloody favourite saying to me when he's, well, now he coaches, he says it's more of the time, but he said it the whole time we refereed together is, expect the unexpected because you know he knows when a game is 4-0 and we're touching it today when a game is going 4-0 and it's the 85th minute I'll go into cruise control because I think sweet I've got this job done what are we doing after the game what beer are we going to have you know that's when the things happen that you just don't think are going to happen because you switch off and you just lose that adaptability and you go into your rote learning oh, I've got this it's fine and that's where the mistakes happen which speaks to the, to the importance of of why, of how helpful stress and pressure can be, keeping you sharp, keeping you alert, keeping you ready for action, right? And then the four nil down, and you get this bit of a cortisol drop, or the adrenaline just dumped and worn off, and we switch off a little bit, and then, yeah, make a might make a poor decision or lose focus, and then and then yeah, consequences from that. And we need that stress, we need that pressure. I think you know all three of us can relate to when you get a top of the table game that's important. You're excited and there's pressure, but you thrive on that pressure and you do better, or generally you do better because of that pressure. Whereas to be honest, the games I struggle with, uh, if I get a, you know, if I potentially get dropped to a lower league and I'm doing a game that isn't going to be as good a quality, that's where I go, whatever, maybe my approach drops, maybe my preparation drops. And, and that's a reflection on me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a reflection on me, you know, is that, yeah. uh, is that arrogance? Is that whatever that may be? But 
exactly what you said, Ben. That's when the mistakes happen because you drop your level. You, you, the stress, the pressure isn't there to push you and you have to motivate yourself. I know that's something that I definitely struggle but with. But would that be also maybe, and maybe Daniel, you can shed some light here. To me, that's, that also comes down to expectation. Because if I have a top of the table game, first versus second, I'm expecting, you know, top type of football, top quality game that is fought to the, you know, from the first to the last minute, then I'm going to approach the game with a different mindset because I'm thinking I'm going to have to be the best version of myself to give the best performance because these are the two best teams and it's going to be a super good game to referee and I'm going to have a lot of fun versus mid-table, two teams, dead rubber in my approach as well. I'm not expecting this to be anything special. Probably I'm not expecting the fans to be that, you know, involving. It's not going to be a great game, so I'm going to get bored. So maybe that's where it's not only the stress of the performance, but it's also the approach building up to it and expecting that different sort of scenario, different, different sort of environment in the game. I agree with what you're saying 100%. I, I, I kind of feel what you said, Jack, and I want to go into you, you, you just your experience. I, I had, a, had an athlete, a client the other day, say something very similar. I just want to ask everyone who's listening here, we often think that psychology is just something that happens to us, right? So I think your example, Jack, was um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm refereeing a top game and I, I get excited because of that. Yeah. And so I'm sharper. Listen to that. It's like something's yeah. happening to us. So that's why I feel this way and I'm more focused. But psychology is a two-way street. It's not just what's happening to us. It's what we're bringing to the party if you like. And so it's, it's about the mindset that you create and the vision that you want for yourself that's going to play and the demands that you place on yourself that then can create a bit of that, the adrenaline of, uh, of, that's required in performance, should we say. So I, I think you've got to consider that don't get caught up. No one, anyone who's listening to this podcast, Millions of you out there. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> we wish. We will be. No, no, they will be. I wasn't, wasn't joking. Um, yeah, anybody who's listening to this podcast, don't think that psychology is just something that happens to you. You can, it's about how you respond to things. So whether you're refereeing State League 5, NPL, A-League, Asian Champions League, World Club Championship, World Cup, there's psychology that happens to you. There's experiences, but then there's your response. And that's the thing that you want to be looking at how you control. That's the only thing that really matters because it's the only thing you can control. You can't control the, the external. You can only control your response. So true. Uh, something I need to, I know this is going to be one of those progress where I go back and, and listen and, and take notes myself on, you know, what have I taken away from this and how can I apply this to my own refereeing? And already there's been three or four things done here, but that one you just said there is something that is so relatable to my refereeing and I need to do. It's very easy to get pumped up for those games, you said, but I need to be the one to bring my own standards to these games when maybe oh, there's not the pressure, um, there's not the prestige of the game. Well, I need to come to the game the same way and not expect the game to come to me. Yeah, well, that's a nice way of saying it, I think. You need to come to the game, not the game come to you. 
Uh, and what you can do there from a practical perspective is, is do some vision building, right? So you talk about strategies before you ask for strategies, one strategy, which is a preemptive one, not a, not being a react, reactive one. I was talking about being a proactive. It's really important. Important is building your vision for what you want for yourself. Understanding that and, and the actions you want to be showing, the, the person you want to be displaying, how you build respect, how you earn trust, the elite standards you hold yourself to. Understanding that as part of your vision, then it doesn't actually matter if you're refereeing St. Kevin's Old Boys versus, uh, which is my team, St. Kevin's Old Boys <laughs> Club, which is trying to think of, versus East Q, or if you're, if you're refereeing Sydney versus Melbourne City, it doesn't matter. You're still just, you've still got the vision that you've built and the one, and, and, and then how you want to display those actions. So, Jake, Daniel is going to send you an invoice for this uh, free consultation, this private consultation you get in. <laughs> oh, man, I'll uh, charge you to FFA. We can, <laughs> I think, and, mate, anyone, FFA, FIFA, I think all referees need to hear, and I'm not just saying that, I generally think if all referees and athletes and business leaders and all the people you said you work with, you know, if they can just, if you can sit down for 20 minutes and just think about these concepts and reflect on them and how they impact you, well, how much better at what you do are you going to get really quickly just by thinking about these concepts and how you can use them to your advantage? They're skills. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. They really are. And, and you know, they, they take a bit of time and... Again, you, you want to be thinking about yourself in, in the future, sort of short, mid and long term. But a vision, a vision, a vision building is, is a five-year thing you're thinking about there, right? It's like, what do you want to be doing in five? How do you want to see yourself in five years? What's that destination you want for yourself? To join the conversation and follow the latest news and updates, go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ref coach. Let's change topic for a minute. So, cause no one cares about refereeing anymore. You work for <laughs> golf Australia. How do I get into the PGA tour? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a crap golfer, but I really want, I'm getting with, older. Right? But with Daniel's help, <laughs> you may be with crap, Daniel's help. I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure I can, you know, what, what should I do? What do you get a coach? <laughs> get some nice clubs. Go hit some balls. Um, no, yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah, you probably need a few thousand, more thousand hours than you have. I've, uh, I've set up a, a training golf course in my backyard, so <laughs> I've been hitting lots of balls <laughs> because I'm going mad of being stuck at home. But, but jokes aside, you worked, obviously you still work with Golf Australia. I know you've been working with uh, Adelaide, the AFL football club, and you mentioned that you also work with some AFL officials. So we call, yeah, which here in Australia for the non-Australian listeners are called umpires. So I was wondering, what did you learn? What are some things that you got out of working with these officials? What is something that stood out for you? Uh, we had recently on the pod uh, a basketball referee and was outstanding how, you know, if you think about basketball and football, the two sports, only, the only thing they have in common is their own ball. But when we went down and talked about officials, if you didn't put that name basketball in the conversation, you wouldn't have not known we were talking about a different sport. So I'm really interested to see, you know, we've talked about now for a bit about football refereeing and referees. Do you feel there is any parallel? There is anything that uh, maybe you've learned from those experiences that made you go, ha ha, you had like an aha moment from an official point of view. Um, I'm really interested to hear that because, you know, obviously there's a lot of different type of sports officials. Yeah. So 
I'm actually just as you're as you're talking now. I'm trying to think with performance. I'm just trying to think if there's anything more universally important than letting go of mistakes of any sport where that's not important, any area of performance where it's not important. So, so that's that's the number one. And the second part is it's it's the reaction to the mistake, right? Which which can be going internal. And so, with the uh, referees and umpires that I've worked with. What's going to be really important when you make a mistake is you go internal and shut down and stop communicating or that your level of communications become, becomes reactionary and emotive because you as the umpire or the ref, you at least have to display actions as the calmest person on the field. Right? And I say display the actions, you might not be feeling the calmest, right? you might, your heart rate might be the fastest and you might be feeling pissed off, right? but you have to act the calmest. And so, and then so obviously your communication needs to be as good as it is in the first minute, as it is in the 60th minute and the 90th minute, right? To the 120th minute. So it, it, that's, that's the common theme. So it's, it's letting go of mistakes, number one, it's always the big one, but the ability to then keep communicating well. That's actually what manages games really well. How you manage emotions of games is communication. You can't, like you telling someone to calm down isn't going to calm them down. You communicating with players telling them what you saw, uh, giving rationales, even though sometimes that can be quite tiring and you can be exhausting and some players just never accept it. That's what actually manages games really well and manages humans. From, from, From the relationship with your partner to managing players on the field, communication. Yeah. And so you, but it's, but it's common to go internal. That's the thing. That's so true. And I think, after what everyone has ex- experienced with the lockdown, I think, you know, communication and relationships, it's, you know, maybe if, if it wasn't obvious enough before, now it's even more obvious and clear how relationships are so important. Because when you are not able to see someone, anyone, but the person in your household for, the, for four weeks, six weeks, that that becomes paramount. And obviously it's fantastic how this is a topic that keeps recurring in all the, the people we talk to. And we always talk about it as refereeing, how you need to communicate and all this sort of stuff. But it just, it's a, it, it really stands out for me. It really does. I mean, well, I mean, you tell me if this is an experience that you guys have had, but I can certainly imagine it. I'm thinking of a couple of, couple of times where this has come, come, come across this, but when there's the you know arguments early on, or, or you, you're noticing some, some it's, a, it's an intense match, and um, you, you're feeling like there's a lot of emotions on in the, on the field. The tendency for for some refs won't be to communicate more. It'll be I'm going to go into my bubble. I'm just going to give uh, decisions, and that's it. And that actually stokes fires even more so. But it's really normal for a human being having to manage 22. <laughs> 22 athletes on the field with all the heightened emotions and, and coaches, excuse me, you as well, and the fan stuff. It's, it's easy to go into your bubble and go, no, that's it. I'm just going to make decisions and that's what my job and get it. But that's, you've got to step out and have that comfort zone because that's what's going to actually keep things on a, on a good level and that's going to help how you actually manage the game. That's really good. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'm loving this conversation. It's uh it's great how all these things, I, love, I also like the way you are explaining all this stuff. Uh, maybe because I'm, um, you know, obviously being, being an import and 
Uh, Ale, yeah, Ale, there you go. Jack and Benji always uh, terrorize me about my, my half English. They call it Ale English. Whenever there's a post on Facebook or that sort of stuff that has to go out, I just put it in a group chat. I'm like, can you make it in English? <laughs> there's this half bibbidi bobbidi, a bit of a handshake and all this sort of stuff. The bibbidi bobbidi. Is it like the Jose Mourinho, the meme that's going out? Is, did you watch oh, yeah. the... That is Ale in a nutshell, honestly. And the hand, the hand movement, you know, the hand emojis on uh, on your iPhone. Oh, that is Ale Dan- talking. <laughs> Daniel is half Italian, if not uh, three quarters Italian. He, I'm pretty sure that if we met him out at a pub having a pint, he'd be right up there with me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there is there is one other topic. I mean, I love where this conversation's gone. It's been fascinating insightful and i've learned an awful lot but there was one topic personally i wanted to talk about and and that's how obviously you know as a player and i did as a player and everybody does it as a player you try and pressure the referee or almost bully the referee into making certain decisions and as a player you know when you've got a i hate to you know when you've got a ref who's maybe a bit weaker and you can push a bit more and challenge a bit more but as referees how can we deal on the pitch when people are trying to influence our decisions and coaches are trying to influence our decisions, you know, and some players are really smart at it. You know, it's just, uh, they'll just give you a little word. It won't be big and shouting, but they'll just give you a little word in your ear. You got that one wrong. Or, uh, you know, you know, you got that one wrong. You know, you owe us one, which is really subtly. And I think that, that, you know, the smarter players are the ones that do that. The ones who scream and shout, you're like, come on, man. But the ones who really try and get you on your level of the intelligent players trying to influence you. How can we as referees deal with that? Great question. Great question. I would put the crowd here clapping. It's such a good question. It's such a good question. There's a real drop drop (laughs) mic moment after that. It's always going to come back to the pre- the, the, the way you're setting up your mindset, I come to sort of two things mold into one, but I'll, I'll use this as a bit of a, a soundbite. So life is a game of incomplete information. Sports are games of incomplete information. Football is a game of incomplete information. Right? So there's absolutely no way that one player, right, whether if, especially if they're trying to con you or having that, that, that word in your ear, right? Even if they think they're right, you might have had a better view and you might know that you're right. Sport is a game of incomplete information. You're coming at it from the information that you have, right? So whether or not they're saying that was wrong, they don't actually know, right? Um, that's what you've got to keep in your head, that it's a game of incomplete information. And it's a bit like poker. You have players bluffing. That's what you've got to come yes. and go into the game with. Right. Not from the place of mistrusting every, anybody, but from, but from the place, <laughs> this is a game of po- poker, is a game of incomplete information. Right? Professional skepticism. <laughs> yeah, healthy skepticism to everything. Yeah, professional skepticism, if you like. And that's, that's the mindset. And you go, step onto that field and you remind yourself. It's like playing poker, people are bluffing. That's the only way that you're going to be able to have, it's the best way that you're going to be able to make the decisions that aren't influenced by people. They may not be the right decisions, but they're not influenced by uh, the, uh, the more uh, vocal or uh, the t- leaders of teams. 
Right? Absolutely communicate with them. It's really important. Right? But understand that it's a game of incomplete information and people are always bluffing. That's the only way you're going to make sure that your decisions are yours. Wow, that's awesome. I, that is, I love that. I love One that. of the most amazing analogies I've ever heard about you know, dealing with players. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. But we do it too. Uh, and maybe you're aware of this as a player or not, Daniel, but bluffing as a referee can be one of the biggest skills. And if you do it with confidence, you know, we talk about selling things with confidence and, you know, so a decision's been made and, you know, you make it, but if, if you're close to it, if you have strong body language, if you're confident how you do it, then people are going to believe you. And not necessarily that you're bluffing, but Ali, you've, Benji and Ali have both heard it in my pre-match instructions. We talk about, and hopefully too many players don't listen to this, but, but on things like throw-ins, if we don't know what way it is, we just won't say anything. Because nine times out of 10, the team who's throwing it should be will pick up the ball and get on with it. Maybe that's not necessarily bluffing by pretending we know somewhere we don't, but just by, we'll just stay quiet and, and the right thing will hopefully happen. And there's just so many instances so many. when... <laughs> When bluffing, bluffing works or, you, or you know, the, the classic before um, when refs don't have uh, communication systems or, or you're on your own, you know, and there's that instance where you know something's happened, but you don't know what it is and you can kind of skirt your way around it just so that, you know, you can get your message across or whatever it may be by bluffing, I think is, you know, comes back to with it being a game of poker, but very much the referee is also a player in that game. 100%. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Um, the blo- yeah, the, 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 it's really interesting. I, I never thought about it as, 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 as bluffing, but um, in terms of what, what refs do, but you, you, you've got to do what you can in that space, right? And, and you're right, absolutely doing it confidently is, is, is really important, yeah, acting that way. Yeah, and I guess there's a bit of improvisation as well in those situations, especially when, when you're not maybe as experienced because obviously... The example that Jack made, it's something that it's become almost a norm in coaching when you talk to younger referees and you say, you know, if you're not sure about the throw-in, let people see what, what's going to happen, see what players do, what their reaction. And there's, there's so many other examples, like, you know, there's selling your decision on looking the part. Again, you may not have, as you said, all the parts and the information, but just winging it. And almost betting on, I think that's the right decision. I'm just going to go with it. Let's see what people do. And again, that part, partly that comes from your guts, having that experience of knowing, well, I've seen this a hundred times. So this may, might as well just be the, the hundred and first time that I've seen it again. And going, oh, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And hopefully they'll buy my bluff. This is, this is, this is, I'm going to challenge you, you, you three a little bit on here. I think you're probably underselling yourselves. You're probably doing yourselves a little dis- disservice in terms of that, that winging and bluffing because you having done all the work, the, the, the thousands of hours, the experience, all of that, that builds up and it counts for a lot even when you, you're not sure on the decision. So you're saying there you're winging it, but actually you, you still, you still have all that information. Even with all that information, you don't know the decision. That must be a bloody hard decision to make, right? Don't underestimate that. And so like probably it could go either way and it might be a 51 49. Right? And so 
whichever decision yeah. you make, you make a decision, you get, let's say it's just, it's a potential foul, could go either way or it could be a non-foul, right? If, if it's so confusing that whatever decision you make, it's going to be seen as wrong, but to, in two thirds, it's 33%, 33%, 34% <laughs> probability, whichever one is going to be seen wrong as two thirds. So there are going to be situations that you are absolutely going to make a call because you need to make one, but it's always going to be seen as the wrong one. Yeah. I guess that's, that's something we used to as referees because to me, you know, whenever you step on that field of play, you're never going to be hundred percent right. Cause someone's is always going to complain, whether it's a team, the other team, both teams, that 83 year old having a Sovlaki at the canteen, someone's always going to think you're wrong. So maybe it's also part of that accepting that whatever happens at the end of the day, if I think I've done my best and maybe I've, I winged it and I got it right or wrong, but at least I managed to sell it or I've done everything I could to make the best possible decision. Accepting that is just, well, you know, I did what I could and it's impossible to make everyone happy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a designer by trade. And to me, that's so real, even in my day-to-day job, because when you, when you go and design something or you build a product, you go and present it to five, 10, 60 people. There's going to be people that love it and there's going to be people that hate it. You can't make everyone happy. So that I think it's, it's something that it's true both in refereeing and in life. And maybe it's that building that habit of, well, whatever I'm going to, whatever decision I'm going to make, not everyone's going to agree with it, and that's just fine. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. I think there are also games that you know, teams, coaches accept. You know, you know when you come up against a particular team, it's going to be a bloody hard day, and you're probably not going to play the beautiful game. Right? You're going to be playing <laughs> you know, real tough slots. It's a tough Tuesday night away, away at Stoke. In the cold <laughs> and wet and rain. Good luck, Messi. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yes, it's going to be really, really tough. And, and you accept that. I, I, I don't know. Do, do refs understand that there are some teams and some matches that, oh, this matchup is going to, they're like, this is going to be an ugly refereeing match. Yeah, that, that's part of our preparation. I, I, not, not, not just from the physical perspective. I mean, like, the decisions that you make are going to be ugly ones. Just like the players are going to play ugly football, win ugly. You might have to ref in a way that's, wow, I know a lot of these decisions today with the, with the way that these two teams play get bloody hard. And so that, that's a really important part because if you go in expecting it's going to be uh, Barcelona versus Mallorca, <laughs> right? it's, it's, it's going to be very different the way you're running with that. So you have to, I think you have to get into that mindset of understanding and, and that's all about your expectations and what you bring into the game and how your mindset's set up and a lot of our preparation goes into that, Danny. You know, you, talk, you make that example of a game which we think might have a you know a lot of t- uh, tick attacker. They're going to play out from the back. Well, well, we have to think about and consider that before the game because we want to adapt our positioning. Uh, you know, with with is a team going to play it short from a goal kick? Well, then we want to make sure we're much closer to the penalty area. We don't want to have to wait ten minutes to realise that and then adapt because by then it could be too late because you could be on halfway line. They've tried to play out the back and they've screwed it up and there's a penalty that you've missed by being too far away. So what you've said is it's crucial. It's part of our preparation and being able to do that is again it's one of those 
experience, it's one percenters and it's research is preparation. I think this could be a great point. Uh, I mean, it's been a great conversation. I just looked at my clock and we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. It's absolutely flown. It's been so engaging. Yeah, it's flown by. And it's awesome to talk to you, Dan. It's been brilliant. But I'd love to get, boys, your thoughts on, I guess, for me, there were so many things that we can take away from this. But what did you think? Benj, what was your number one takeaway from this conversation? The big thing that struck it for me is when other referees make mistakes, we say to them, don't worry, it's okay, it happens to everyone, just get your head up and go at it again next week. It's perfectly okay to make mistakes. And yet when it happens to us during the game, we are absolutely crucifying ourselves. We hold ourselves to a much harder standard than we would to anyone else and suddenly we're just kicking ourselves thinking that we should be at this really high standard that we don't, expect of our colleagues and other referees so having compassion for myself when making mistakes was such a big takeaway for me when when we first when i first got in touch with daniel i said you know psychology is something that really intrigues me and it's part of my job as well doing user experience you know i have to think about how people think but it's it's just i think for me probably the the thing that I liked the most was the the, the analogy with poker and uh, the game of missing information. That to me, it just I just relieved in a second about all the episodes and all the things that have ever happened to me and thinking about all the times players go, oh, you got a wrong ref. And uh, putting putting this, this filter on that situation and going, I knew at the time that he had no idea and... All the time, I just always brushed it off. But deep inside, it kind of stung a bit. It always does because he, <laughs> in the back of your mind, it always, you always go, what if he's right? It, it's, it's, not, it's normal. It's human. You're always going to think, what if he's right and I got it wrong? And there are some players more than others that get in your head. As you know, Jack, many times I've vented <laughs> to you about uh, some, some, you know, person, people, some people, but we, we won't name names. So to me, that was really interesting because putting the filter on those situations, I can see how it just makes so much sense. And to some extent, makes me feel a lot better about all those decisions that maybe were contested. <laughs> but, Good. <I'm> glad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so true. The, the poker analogy is a brilliant one. I think that that's going to be something that I, I think about every game before I go out now in future, <laughs> both how can I use it and... Bluff, double bluff. Yeah, how, how, are, players, how are players and coaches going to think about it as, as well? But I think for me, the key takeaway from, from everything you've said, and it's been so much, but it's been that having compassion for yourself when you make mistakes is just so critical to be able to be kind to yourself if you make a mistake is such a good skill in refereeing but also to take into life in general well well i talk i talk to my to my golfers mostly about i use this example mostly with my golfers and i ask that if because sometimes our our self-talk right the critical side of it it gets masked. It feels like it's a motivator. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's pushing us. But I often ask my golfers, imagine that internal voice you have. Take it out and, and pop it into your caddy. Imagine it was your caddy talking to you like this. What would you do? And to, a, to a person, 
they say I'd fire them. <laughs> but when it's in your own head, it feels like you know, this is some sort of motivating thing or, or some sort of we're identical to this in a, in a, in a critic of ours. But actually, no, like just take a stop, stop and go, if I'm thinking this way, and if it was outside of me talking to me, what would I do with this? Right? And most of the people say, I would fire them or I'd ditch them. And that's the important thing to realize here. If that's, the, if that's your answer, <laughs> then you probably need to absolutely dial up your self-compassion. Firing someone sounds uh, kind. I'd probably st- strike them with a golf club. I, I drive on them. Ping! <laughs> see, see if I can drive that, 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 their head better than the ball. <laughs> Bigger targets may, may be better for me. <laughs> uh, that was Brit, no, outstanding. That, that, I think that's a great way to finish it that little story about the golf who's done it. And it, it's something that we can all think about and all reflect on and, and, and take something away from. And how can we deal with that ourselves to make us better at what we do and ultimately to make us better people on that note. Thank you very much for, for spending the evening with us. The last hour and a half has just been a brilliant discussion. I've learned lots, uh, considered lots. It's been some quite deep thinking, which has been great. I know I'm going to, go back and listen to this probably two or three times and think about how can I take away what I do. But how can people find out more about you, Daniel, if they want to get in touch or find out more about the work you do? I'm sure. Well, if they want to follow um, Arit, um, got a pretty cool and active Insta, Insta site called Get Arit. How, how do you spell that? Uh, get, G-E-T dot uh, Arit, A-R-E-T-E. Um, and if they want to uh, reach out to me, then I'm at danieldiamond.com. Daniel Diamond is with a Y, D-Y-M-O-N-D. I've actually seen a, a few of your uh, posts on Get A Reach on the Instagram. Oh, yeah, those, those Tuesday night ones, yeah. Yeah, Cass got me on too. Some, some really interesting stuff, so I suggest give it a follow. Fantastic. So, no, thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's, it's, it's been a brilliant conversation. I know everyone will take their own thing from it but there is so much sure. yeah, we can take great. and learn Good fun. from this so really really appreciate it oh, the app launches on the 1st of October I should say oh yes not far not far, not far at all man. as a matter of fact I'm pretty sure this, pod- this podcast will be released close to the launch as well so you know we'll put that out on our channels and we'll have a launch po- launch for launch party for the reason mm-hmm. the podcast <laughs> we'll hopefully we'll be out of uh, lockdown by then so thank you very much Daniel that was uh, amazing it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us.